Our Old Testament reading is Jeremiah 37, verse 11 through 38, verse 6. Here we see the persecution of God's prophet, which is a theme we'll take up again in our New Testament reading in a few moments. But first, Jeremiah 37, verse 11. This is the very word of God. And it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, the captain of the guard was there whose name was Arijah, the son of Shalemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he seized Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, You are defecting to the Chaldeans. Then Jeremiah said, False, I am not defecting to the Chaldeans. But he did not listen to him. So Arijah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Therefore the princes were angry with Jeremiah, and they struck him and put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe. For they had made that the prison. When Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells, and Jeremiah had remained there many days, then Zedekiah the king sent and took him out. The king asked him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? Moreover, Jeremiah said to king Zedekiah, What offense have I committed against you, against your servants, or against this people, that you have put me in prison? Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land. Therefore, please hear now, O my lord, the king. Please let my petition be accepted before you. And do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison, and that they should daily give him a piece of bread from the baker's street until all the bread in the city was gone. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Now Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, Jukal, the son of Shalamiah, and Pasher, the son of Micaiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, he who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live, his life shall be as a prize to him, and he shall live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore the princes said to the king, Please let this man be put to death, for thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in the city, and the hands of all the people, by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. Then Zedekiah the king said, Look, he is in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. And over to the New Testament now, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verse 53, through chapter 14, verse 12. It's our sermon text this morning. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, 
Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he went and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Gracious Lord God, once again we come to you and ask that you would make our hearts like the good soil. You would take your word, plant it deep, break up the hardened unbelief of our hearts and put your word where it will grow. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear with faith, hear with understanding, that we might see the glories of your gospel and the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we might repent and believe. We ask in his precious name. Amen. What is it about the gospel that you find embarrassing, that you find uh, perhaps makes you hesitate to share it with others? Is there part of the gospel or part of the teaching of Christianity that let's, let's save that for later or let's, let's sand down the rough edges so that it's a little more palatable to those who are around us? We're moving into this new section in Matthew's gospel and we're, we're starting to head towards the cross and we're going to see this increasing opposition to Christ. We're going to continue to see the glories of Christ as he teaches as he works miracles, uh, but we're also going to see this increasing opposition. Right? His ministry is driving this wedge through Israel, and those who reject him, and those who reject his kingdom, are going to be increasingly fierce in their resistance to him. Um, we saw this already. Jesus promised this back in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force, he said. And we see that, right, that that struggle against the kingdom, that fighting against the kingdom happening in this section that we just read this morning. We see it in two parts, right? First of all, we see Jesus, he comes to his hometown, and and, and the people there of his hometown, Nazareth, reject him. They, 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 They reject the kingdom. And then we also see King Herod rejecting the kingdom as he has John the Baptist beheaded. So the the people of Nazareth reject the kingdom because it's too humble. And then John the Baptist, uh, excuse me, King Herod rejects the kingdom because it's too holy. These two reasons continue to be reasons why we see people reject the gospel. They continue to be reasons why we might be tempted to sand down the rough edges of the gospel. It's too humble. 
or it's, it's, too, it's too holy. We see people get tripped up by, by both these things. And we, we see that if people get tripped up by these things about the kingdom, perhaps they'll be offended and tripped up by, by us. And they'll turn their hatred of the kingdom of heaven into hatred of us as well. And we might face persecution ourselves, rejection ourselves. And not only that, these are also reasons why we ourselves can get tripped up by Christ and His kingdom. This is, loved ones, this is what the passage here is about. It's calling us to discipleship. It's calling us to follow Christ, calling us to follow His kingdom and trust Him as the humble Savior and as the holy Savior and to follow Him and bear witness to Him even though we know that we may face, uh, we may face opposition as well. I want to start by looking, first of all then, at the first section here, Matthew 13, 53-58. Jesus is rejected in Nazareth. And our first heading is offensive humbleness. Offensive humbleness. Matthew tells us here that at this point in his ministry, Jesus comes back to his hometown. Uh, that's Nazareth. Nazareth, the little backwater town where Jesus grew up. Uh, Jesus' ministry has mostly been going on in the more populous city of Capernaum. Now he goes home to Nazareth. And he goes to the synagogue there on the Sabbath, where he would have grown up as a boy, going there every Sabbath with his, with his family. Um, and he goes there to, to teach in the synagogue. Everyone there knows his family. Everyone there knows him. They remember when he was just a, a, a little boy, right? Uh, a little running, running around the synagogue after, after services. They, they, they knew him since he was a toddler, toddling around. And he's, he's gone off, made quite a name for himself if the rumors are to be believed. But now he's back in the hometown. And I'm sure everyone's sort of anxious to see him. Right? They've, they've heard so much about the, the, this little boy who grew up here and now went off somewhere else and made a name for himself. And they're, they're anxious to see him. Right? Did you hear he's going to be back on the Sabbath? Yeah, he's going to be preaching on, on, on the Sabbath. Are, are you gonna, I'll make sure I'm there. Are you going to be there? Um, anxious to hear. Right? He didn't go to school to be a rabbi. He was trained to be a carpenter. Worked as a carpenter until he was 30. But now he's, he's coming back. They're astonished. And he comes and he teaches them on, on the Sabbath and, 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 and they are astonished at his teaching, at his preaching. The way he preaches, the way he teaches. No one ever else has preached or taught like this. He teaches with authority. And they don't see the, the, many of his miracles here, but they've heard of them. And so they're astonished. And in verse 54, they ask the question, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Wisdom and, and mighty works. Those are the two things Matthew's been weaving together through his whole gospel for us, right? The teaching of Christ, his wisdom, and the miracles of Christ, his mighty works, the wonderful works of God. These two things Matthew's weaving together to show us who this Christ is. He teaches with the very wisdom of God. He works miracles with the very power of God. He is undeniably the Christ, the Messiah, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. But the neighbors of Nazareth see this. They're astonished. They see the wisdom. They hear about the works. But they're not ready to believe. They're rejecting him. They question, where, where, did he, where did he get this? What's all the fuss about? It's just Jesus. I knew him as a kid. They get offended by him. The Greek word is skandalizo, right? This is where we get our word scandalized. They, 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 get, they trip over Jesus. Um, what, what is it that they are scandalized by? Is it that familiarity breeds, breeds contempt? 
That's part of it. Jesus says here, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Why is that? Why is it that this, that this proverb that Jesus says, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown? What's the root of that? What exactly are they offended by in Jesus that they're not going to honor him? Well, I think they're offended by the humbleness of Jesus. That They know his beginnings, right? They look and he was just... He was just another ordinary kid in Nazareth. He wasn't running around doing all kinds of miracles as a child. He wasn't preaching sermons as a child. He was probably better behaved than any other child in the, in the congregation because he's sinless. But other than, besides that, there's nothing remarkable about him to them. They, so he's just lived this quiet life of submission to the Lord not a life of loud fanfare and ambition, right? For 30 years there. Remember the parable of the mustard seed we heard about last Sunday, right? The kingdom of heaven is like one tiny little mustard seed getting planted in a, in a field. You don't notice it. Nothing remarkable about it. And this is, uh, they, they look at Jesus and they, this is what they see. Not much there, right? And it's just the beginning of the humbleness of Jesus that he grew up this way patiently, quietly going about his work, obeying his Father in heaven. Um, this humbleness of Christ is going to only get more emphasized, isn't it? As his ministry goes on, he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected more and more. He's going to be accused of blasphemy. He's going to be given a mock trial. He's going to be crucified as the lowest of the low. Rather than lead the Jews to victory over the Romans, he's going to be crucified by the Romans. Uh, he looks like a weak Christ, a defeated Christ. So the, the, the people of Nazareth, and they're, they're typical of, of, of so much of Israel, looks at Jesus and they say, he's not the kind of Christ we want. He's not the kind of Christ we are expecting. He's a, he's a humbled and lowly Christ. The church in Corinth, Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians to, uh, was struggling with the same thing. They were tripping over this as well. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-23, says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. For to us, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul says, we, he goes on, he says, we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. A crucified Christ is a humbled Christ, and a humbled Christ humbles us, right? Um, Christ has come to die, not because of how much we are worth, but because of how worthless we are in our sin. Um, to accept Christ as your Savior is to accept being stripped of every reason you thought you had that you could save yourself by. To, to accept Him as your Savior means you have nothing to boast about anymore. You're not allowed to have anything to hang on to, to boast about anymore. Isaac Watts, his hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. You can't look at the cross and pat yourself on the back at the same time. The humbled Christ humbles me. That's why, that's why the gospel, that's why this kingdom of heaven that Christ is bringing can be so offensive to us. 
This is what's causing the scandal in Nazareth. He's just a kid from Nazareth. I deserve something more than that. And brothers and sisters, there's a warning here in this text that we should take to heart for ourselves. Um, We see in the Bible that it is so often the place where God is supposedly best known. That is is the place where he is least known. That... um, Christ comes to his own, and his own do not receive him. The place where he should be welcomed with open arms, he's stiff-armed, kept at a distance. And this is a warning because we're familiar with Christ. And, and we, we can look at him, we can, we can start to see the gospel and our Lord Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. And that's, that's too mundane. I need something more exciting. I need something more than that. I need something that, that, that's not so ordinary and humble. It's just not, it's not worth much for me. The danger of, of that is, as we see here in verse 58, as Jesus responds to their unbelief, that he doesn't do many mighty works. Verse 58, Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They didn't trust him. They didn't have faith in him. So they don't receive the blessings of salvation from him. Um, they wouldn't humble themselves, and so Jesus would not bless them. Uh, as long as you hold on to your pride, as long as you hold on to being self-sufficient in yourself um, and don't come empty-handed to Christ, then you won't know his powerful work in your life. I'm, I'm not talking about miracles. Some people would take this text and say that Jesus is saying, well, if you have enough faith, then, then Jesus will do some really mighty work, some really cool stuff. Turn your life right around and, and, and heal you, provide, you know, get you out of credit card debt, whatever. That's not what the text is saying, though it's sometimes twisted that way. It's, it, the stakes in the text are much, much higher than that. The warning in the text is that if you don't humble yourself and trust this Savior, then he's not going to come and save you. If we don't humble ourselves, loved ones, before him as a church and trust in him and cry out to him to be our Savior, then we will not enjoy the blessings of salvation or the fruitfulness of faith. So don't be tripped up by the humbleness of Jesus and the ordinariness of his kingdom. Instead, humble yourself. And, and, and as you go out and share the gospel with family members, with co-workers, with neighbors. Don't be embarrassed by the humbleness of the gospel. Um, don't be embarrassed by the lowliness and the weakness of a crucified Christ. Uh, because, as we read, the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. In fact, the humbleness of the gospel is the point, isn't it? This is what saves us. It's a Christ who comes down, who, who comes down and lays down his life humbly for us. It's the very weakness of Christ. It is our salvation and our hope. So do not be embarrassed about the humbleness of the gospel. Embrace it. Embrace the humble kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we see, the offensive humbleness of the kingdom. The second thing we see is the offensive holiness of the kingdom of heaven. The offensive holiness of the kingdom. This is chapter 14, 1 through 12. Uh, so one reason people stumble over the kingdom is it's too humble. Um, the other reason that they can stumble over the kingdom, something equally offensive to our pride, is that it's too holy. This is a holy kingdom. Uh, this is what we see in, in Matthew 14, 1 through 12. Matthew brings in here this flashback. 
about Herod and John the Baptist in order to show us the kind of opposition the kingdom of heaven is facing. John the Baptist, of course, was preaching the kingdom of, of God, preaching the kingdom of heaven, just like Jesus was. He served as the forerunner to Christ. He was getting things ready, right? Getting people's ears ready to listen to Jesus. He was announcing him. Uh, and he was preaching the kingdom. He didn't just preach it generally. He preached it specifically, and he applied what he was preaching as well. And in one case, he, he got pretty specific with, with King Herod. Uh, and he told Herod that what he was doing was wrong. Herod had divorced his wife and gone and taken his brother's wife and was living in this, uh, this adulterous relationship with her. This was, this was completely normal for the Herod family. Their family was an incestuous, messed up family, um, did whatever they wanted. And it was completely normal, really, for the Greco-Roman culture around them, but it was completely out of line with God's law. And so, Herod, uh, so, so John the Baptist is fearlessly rebuking Herod for this. And he doesn't just do it once. He does it over and over and over and over, calling Herod to repent of this and calling, him what he's, calling out what he's doing as sin. Finally, Herod, and, and especially I think Herod's wife, Herodias, they get fed up with this and they throw him in prison. The text tells us that they want to have him put to death, but, John, uh, but, but Herod's not quite ready yet to... Uh, to, to, to tackle that because John's pretty popular still with the people. What do we see here? We see, yes, that the message of the gospel of, uh, of the kingdom is a message of grace like no other, that the humble Christ has come to die and rise again for sinners, that, that in, in the gospel, God gives sinners everything he has to give in Christ graciously and freely, and you receive it by faith in him. But we also see that the message of the gospel is a message of repentance, it's a call to repent of your sin. We said this earlier that it's two halves of the same coin. You cannot turn toward Christ without also leaving your sin behind. You've got to turn away from your sin when you come to Christ. And then if you're going to follow Christ, the demands of His holiness are far-reaching. You don't just come to Christ, get your fire insurance for the last day, and then live however you wanted to live before. You come to Christ and you give all you are to Him in a life of holiness and discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's well-known words about discipleship, right? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die to give it all to him and follow him with all that you, all that you are. God in the gospel, loved ones, tells us that everything we were and everything we did before we came to Christ was rotten at its core. You don't just need Jesus to give you a new coat of paint. You needed to come in, knock everything down, and rebuild from the ground up. Right? That's, that's repentance. Your life needs to be completely rebuilt by Christ. Start over by Christ. We're called to holiness. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount says, Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Echoing the words of God in Leviticus, Be holy, as I am holy. That's, that's, that's an offensive message because God's holiness demands that we give up those things that we love most, those, those things that we are treasuring deep down in our hearts, our idols. Herod, for instance, here, he loved his adultery. He worshipped his adultery. 
He worshipped power. He worshipped control. He worshipped pleasure. He worshipped himself. So when John comes and says, you've got to repent of all those things, Herod hates him for that. Herod won't hear it because this is a holy gospel that he's proclaiming. Brothers and sisters, what about you? Does the holiness of the kingdom of heaven offend you? Do you ever think, how can Jesus ask me to give up that for him? How, how can he ask me to do, to do that for him? Do you ever think, who is he to tell me how I'm going to live in that area of my life? And this is our culture's dominant attitude, right? We live how we want to live. You define who you are. You decide what your purpose is in life. You live by your own rules. This is what it means to be a human being. Set your own course. But Christ says, I'm the authority, and I tell you who you are, and I tell you how to live. I'm the creator, I'm the king, and I made you for holiness. So have, have, you, have you bowed to Christ and heard his command to live a holy life? Yes, it's an offense to your pride, but oh, when you do, it sets you free to live as you're meant to live in holy submission to him. And, and, and he'll change your heart so that when you hear his commands, it's no longer a drudgery that burdens you, but instead a delight. Yes, Lord, it's exactly what I want to do. We are also called, loved ones, um, not only to embrace the holiness of the kingdom of heaven, um, but we're also called, like John here, to be an ambassador for this kingdom of heaven. John lives this holy life. He's proclaiming God's holy gospel, calling for repentance, and he himself is living it out. And he's not just talking about the parts of the gospel that people like to hear. He's, he's telling the whole gospel. He's calling for repentance. Not, he's not proud. He's not harsh about it. Um, uh, but but uh, he's not afraid to call out sin and call for, for, for repentance. And he's not going to change that message for anybody. And there's an example for us here. We need to, that we need to follow. Stand your ground as an ambassador for Christ as you proclaim the gospel. Don't, don't be arrogant about it. Don't, don't, don't try to be offensive. Let the offense come from the message itself as it strikes a sinner. Don't try to be offensive yourself. But, but, but don't back off of the holiness of the kingdom of heaven. We have such a strong temptation to do this. Right? It's, it's, it's hard to maintain the balance of speaking the truth in love. And our, and our culture, as every culture, hates the holiness of God. And so there's going to be pushback. We're going to be called uh, unkind and intolerant for this. But don't, don't back off proclaiming the holiness of God and the need for repentance. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, people won't want to listen. They'll respond with opposition. I mean, look what they do to John. They take him, they throw him in prison, they want to put him to death. As we think about John uh, uh, being thrown in prison here, um, he, he's thrown in prison, and then in verses 6 through 11, we see this, this birthday party that Herod throws, um, and, and what happens there. There's this dancing, uh, Herod's, Herod's young stepdaughter dances, Herod is pleased with this, and, and he's so taken with her that he promises to give whatever she asks. Um, she goes to her mom and says, what should, I, what should I ask for? And her mom says, well, ask for John's head on a plate. It's uh, the moment of revenge here on, 
on John. Herod is conflicted. Herod, of course, hates John, doesn't like what he's been saying, but also is, is somewhat, I think, very guilty conscience. And he's afraid of John, and he's also afraid of the crowds and how they respond. But he, he goes along with this, and he has John executed. Last of the great Old Testament prophets announcing the coming of Christ is beheaded. It's a dark moment in the gospel. It's, it's a dark moment in the story. It's full of not just its own grief and sadness, but it's, it's full of foreboding as well about what's coming. If this is how they treat the forerunner of the kingdom of heaven, if, if they, this is how they treat the one who announced the Messiah, then how will they treat the Messiah himself? We said as we started that as we move into this next section of Matthew's gospel, the shadow of the cross is going to get bigger and bigger. We're heading that direction. Um, we, can, we can draw a line from John's beheading to what's going to happen to Jesus and his betrayal and his crucifixion. And we can also draw the line a little further, can't we, from, from John's persecution to what's going to happen to our Lord Jesus Christ and also to us. Jesus says in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we shouldn't expect to be treated better than they treated Jesus. We, we should expect to get the same kind of treatment that Jesus received if we're being faithful, if we're, if we're preaching the same message that he preached and living it out the same way that he lived it out. And again, this is a call to us to not compromise the message of the witness to the gospel of the kingdom of heaven or to tone it down in any way or alter it in any way. We take it as ambassadors. We are given the message by our king and we take that message exactly as he gave it. We're not daring to change it. And we'll take the consequences. You might be mocked for it. Um, you might be uh, called intolerant for it. You might lose friends for it. You might lose influence. You might lose social standing. But loved ones, you can be sure that you do not need to fear. Because what you have in Christ and his kingdom is far greater than anything you might lose by being faithful witnesses to him. Notice with me as we close, verse 12 here. John's disciples, what do they do if, after they find out that this has happened to John? They, they, they lose their beloved teacher and master and friend. He was callously executed as a joke at the whim of a petty ruler. What do they do? Verse 12 says, His disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. I think there's a suggestion to us there of what they do. They go to Jesus. They bury John. And then, then they go to Jesus, suggesting that they have a new master, a new teacher, that they're continuing to be faithful to the kingdom of heaven, that they found something better than what they lost. They suffer for the kingdom, so they go tell Jesus about it. It's so simple, but I think it's a wonderful example again for us here. That as we suffer for the sake of the kingdom, when, when, when we're persecuted for the sake of Christ, opposition comes, resistance comes, rejection comes, whatever it might look like in your situation, go to our Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Jesus. Why do we go to Him? What do we find in, in Him as, as we go to Him out of our 
you know, out, out, of, out of being persecuted and, and oppressed, uh, we, we go to Jesus and we find the one who has suffered far more for this kingdom. We also find the one who passes through that suffering victorious in the end. And he didn't just, our Lord Jesus didn't just suffer for the sake of the kingdom and, and, and get through it uh, and, and rise from the dead for himself. But he did it for you. He did it for, for you and for me. He rose from the dead. He won the victory over the enemy for us. And he gives us this wonderful promise. John 16, 33 he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He's won the victory. He, he's dealt our enemy and his enemy the, the mortal blow. And so we can be faithful as we look to him and as we see his faithfulness for us. And as we know, as we rest in the truth, that he has won the victory for us. That he'll preserve us. He'll, he'll, he'll see us through it. He won't let go of us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You are in the sovereign hands of King Jesus. And he's with you. Always. He's sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, but he's with you. Always. He's gone before you and he's with you. And he's going to bring you through every danger, safe at last, to his heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and his dying love for us and his resurrection life for us. We thank you that he is with us. Lord, we pray that you make us bold and faithful in our witness to the gospel of Christ. May we not trip over its humbleness. May we not trip over its holiness. But embracing our humble and holy Christ. May we be faithful witnesses of him. For your glory. Amen. Let's respond now together by standing and singing number 449. We rest on thee. on thee, our shield and our defender. 